Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Kodakery. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. Michael Goy, ASC, joins us this week in The Kodakery. Michael is a true craftsman of cinematography. He's worked on television shows like Glee, Scream Queens, and most notably, American Horror Story. Listen in to learn how Michael uses his camera work to get the viewer into the mind of the characters, often with terrifying results. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with Michael. Hey everybody, welcome to the Kodakery. Do you like scary things? I do, and Megan does not. (laughs) And uh, in researching for this particular interview with Michael Goy, who's an incredible cinematographer, who shot all kinds of amazing projects. The one I'm referring to here that has given Megan nightmares is American Horror Story. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. So thank you for the nightmares, but <laughs> <laughs> we we want to just start a little bit at the beginning, and I know you, you started shooting Super 8 when you were 8. How serendipitous is that? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I started shooting regular 8. Okay, eight. still, yeah. still yeah. serendipitous, but <laughs> how did learning on Super 8 impact what you do today? Well, you know, it was, it was great because um, some of my uh, early cameras, uh, they were all used, um, you know, had manual uh, aperture capabilities, and, and so, you know, I had to take responsibility for the exposure that I made. And uh, very early on, it, it taught me, you know, the ramifications of, of if I underexpose this far, then it looks like this. If I overexpose this far, then it looks like this. And, you know, as a creative tool, then I immediately saw the possibilities of, of where you peg your exposure on the film, you know, in terms of what you get and, and how it feels. So shooting uh, 8mm and Super 8, uh, the Super 8 cameras were more automatic aperture, so that was kind of going away. But uh you know, it it really taught me a lot about the film sensitometry and also about what I could do with film technology. Um, and to have that kind of um, inspiration, I would call it, at a, at a very early age, uh, really kind of pushed me in the direction of wanting to explore uh, movie making and filmmaking more. You've heard about the new Kodak Super 8 camera, correct? I have. What do you think about that, you know, returning to Super 8? Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on the return of film? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think really going full force into Super 8 once again is, is really a brilliant move because you have uh, filmmakers or you have fledgling filmmakers or potential future filmmakers who maybe can't afford a 35-millimeter film, who, who can't afford to, to get a package to support shooting 35-millimeter or even 16-millimeter and you know, 8mm Super 8 can, can open up their eyes the same way it, it did me. And it, it carries each, each film stock and each gauge carries with it a, a certain feel and a certain texture and, and an aesthetic, I, I think, it, uh, approach that um, when you look at your particular project, you know, you can choose the, your, your film stock or your film format the way that uh, would be most effective to serve that particular project. So I think Super 8, for me, um, I've used it on American Horror Story. I've used it on uh, a lot of features that I've shot. Uh, For me, it carries an immediacy of something uh, remembered, something from your past, something that's, that's maybe a bittersweet memory. 
And for me, it's it's the fastest way to to get the audience to focus in on on the fact that this is something that means something emotionally to the character. Um, I did a project um, a couple years ago that the you know where there was a perfect opportunity to to shoot Super Eight. It was it was a flashback to another country, another time. And I said, well, let's shoot Super 8 film. And, you know, I, I got pushback on it because that, that particular project was being done in digital format. Um, it's what the network and the studio wanted. And, and uh, so they said, well, no, we're going to just shoot it on digital cameras and then we'll make it look like Super 8 in post. And I sat, sat there in post for a couple of days <laughs> watching well, can we add more green? Can we, can we make it look like there's sprocket holes on the side? Can we, you know distress this you know and i kept thinking we could have just picked up a super 8 camera and shot this and it'd be done and it would look perfect and it would feel perfect so i think we're in an era where we need to understand that um sometimes one size doesn't fit all sometimes uh, choosing an option of the type of not just the type of camera, but the type of technology you want to use, whether it be video or whether it be film, um, affects your efficiency and affects you know how you get your your images and how you get your message across in the most efficient way. Yeah. As a cinematographer, how much can you influence what kind of stock you use or what kind of format you use? I know you said in that particular circumstance they won, but can you, can cinematographers push to get something like this done? Well, cinematographers can certainly make the argument if they feel like film is the, the, the best choice for the production, you know, to, to the producers. But, you know, ultimately it's, it's up to the producer and what uh, they feel is, you know, best for them. Uh, the, the thing you want to do is, is try to make sure that they're not operating under misinformation. Right. That they're not going forward with a, a certain type of technology or a certain methodology because uh, they've only read marketing materials or because somebody told them it would be the best way to go. I mean, as the cinematographer, I think you have the responsibility to be the voice of conscience and, and reason and say, listen, this is why I think this is the right choice for this particular project, you know. And I was faced with one of those situations uh, on, on a movie on feature film where when I went in to interview for this, the feature, the, the producer, who's produced you know, a lot of movies, a lot of Academy Award-winning movies, told me flat out when I went into the interview, you know, we're going to shoot this, this movie on video, on digital. What do you think about that? And I told him I thought it was a mistake. And he said, why? He said, I said, because you're shooting a movie that takes place primarily on the beach, in sunlight and, and largely with African-American actors and with the technology of the, the video cameras at that time, I said I would need to bring in an enormous amount of fill lights and also uh, overhead silks to, to balance out the sand, and it's going to be time-intensive. It's going to be uncomfortable for your actors, and I just think it's the wrong choice for this movie. And he says, well, we're going to shoot it on digital and and they hired me anyway, <laughs> um, even though I told them everything he didn't want to hear. But three days before we uh, started shooting the movie, uh, he called me into his office. And he said, you still think we're making a mistake shooting this on, on video? And I said, yes, I, I do, for all the reasons that, that I told you. 
And he said, fine, shoot it on film. You know, so, you know, we shot it on film and it went very efficiently. And it was it was just the right choice at the right time. So, you know, as cinematographers talk to producers about their particular productions, you know, it, it helps to have a producer with an open mind, with an understanding that, well, the cinematographer is telling me this because they don't want to see me screw myself. Right. You know, they don't want to see me step into a hole that I can't get out of. And, and you know, so it's, it's, I think it's getting better. I, I actually think it's getting better, certainly better than it was like seven or eight years ago, um, where not, not only, or even 10 years ago, where not only were you being uh, forced to shoot in, in some video format, but being forced to use a particular camera or something. So, you know, I think the understanding is coming around that the, uh, the budget numbers are not that different you know, and, and you need to choose what's going to be the most efficient way to get your production done and also what's going to serve the aesthetic of the production the best. Yeah, well said. Um, so let's let's jump into one of the projects that you do shoot a lot of film on, American Horror Story. How did you get involved in being the cinematographer for that? Uh, they had a cinematographer on American Horror Story when I was brought on to alternate uh, on Glee with Chris Baffa. And uh, about halfway through the season, the uh, the cinematographer who was on American Horror Story was moving on to another project, and so they came to me um, after seeing how I worked on on Glee and said, you know, we need you to step into American Horror Story. And uh, the the show was already on film. Chris Baffa had shot the pilot, um, and uh, you know, Chris Chris had shot film on on Glee all the time that he was there. So they were already in in that mode of shooting film. Um, there was only uh, one discussion, uh, as I as I recall, and that was at the beginning of the second season, about whether it should continue on film or or shift over to video. And and uh, I believe that at the time I, I told uh, them that well, I think shooting on film is going to be an integral part of the aesthetic approach to the show. And you know, to be to be perfectly perfectly honest, I probably didn't even know what I meant at that time when I said it. But over the course of that second season, especially, it it manifested itself um, in the way that we approached flashbacks, in the way that we approached different points of view. Uh, you know, which was largely done by how I manipulated shooting the film by how much I underexposed by if I pulled process or pushed process, if I bleached bypass, um, if I wanted something to look like very old the film, I would shoot black and white in a hand crank camera and sometimes 16 millimeters, sometimes 35. So, you know, the variety of looks and how quickly and easily they were achieved because we were shooting on film became one of the, uh, the signatures of the show. You know, the, the thing that people started to recognize about the show was, oh, wow, they've got all these, these different looks and, and it's, it has this feel. So, so then it became easier on, on this, the uh, years subsequently that, that I did shoot the show to, you know, say, well, you know, this, this is what we can do in this season. This is what we can do with the hotel. We can make it look like this or with the freak show, you know, we can give it this kind of feel. Yeah. Right. So, so you came in on season two, the asylum season? 
No, I came in in the middle of season one. Oh, okay. I shot I shot the last half of the first season, and then uh, and then seasons two, three, four, and five subsequent to that. But uh, you know, when I first came on to American Horror Story in the middle of the first season, they had a look that they liked already. So you know, initially the episodes that I shot was about maintaining the look and the feel of the show that had been established. And it really, when you get down to the last two episodes of the first season, is where I started to deviate from the look a little bit. Alfonso Gomez Rayon, who's a director that I love working with, and I started to come up with a, a visual approach that um, would reflect Connie Britton's giving birth, you know, and and uh, kind of the madness and the visions surrounding that. And a lot of the techniques that we used in that episode started to infiltrate into the visual vocabulary of the show, and and it really reached its full flower in season two. Yeah, specifically an episode that you got nominated uh, for an Emmy for, I Am Anne Frank Part 2, which I just Mm -hmm. rewatched last night to sort of to get ready for this, which subsequently gave me a nightmare last night. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, so many camera angles, so many points of view. I mean, the, the, the beginning where they've, we've got this conversation and you're going in the mirror and then you're coming out and you're going around this little dance with the two characters. How do you approach that? Do you have like a map and you think, and you say, this is how I'm going to do it. Or does some of it get pieced together later from things that you have shot? Well, a scene like, uh, like the beginning of I am and Frank part two is, is really a collaboration. It's a dance between the, the camera, between the, the lights, uh, between the actors and, um, what it is that you're trying to achieve. We certainly, uh, Alfonso and I certainly could have shot it in a, in a more straightforward way with a lot of coverage, with close-up details of, of what they're referring to in terms of the Nazi research material on the walls and in reference to the, uh, the tattoo on the man's arm. Uh, it could certainly have been done that way, but Alfonso was looking for something that uh, would not only give us all that information, but also give us a, an internal reflection of the state of mind of mm-hmm. Jessica's character. And that, that really is uh, a pivotal difference in, in the approach to the cinematography in American Horror Story, as opposed to, to maybe some other things that I've done, is I, I was always searching for a way to visually depict the, the frame of mind of the character, the main character in the scene. I was not so much interested in presenting a scene as just being scary or just being moody or romantic or whatever, Uh, but I was looking for ways to put the audience inside that character's head. So in that particular scene, the the fact that the the camera is restless and always looking around the room and and never settling is a, a perfect reflection of the state of mind of Jessica's character. You know, she was going to meet this man she knew nothing about. She was on uncertain ground. She's giving him very confidential information to this stranger. And we worked it out as this, this dance of, of unfolding information. And it, it puts a lot of demands on the actors, certainly, because, you know, when we come away from the wall to, to see the map and stuff like that, we got to be pulling away and Jessica's got to be turning her head right as we see her, uh, things like that. But you know, the actors on that show, you know, who are 
all seasoned professionals really responded to the challenges of, of making the show what it is. They recognized that we were trying to do something different. So you didn't get the kind of uh, pushback a lot of times that you may get when there's a misunderstanding or a not complete understanding of what it is you're trying to achieve. You know, I have done close-ups of, of Jessica Lang with a 10 millimeter lens a foot and a half away from her face, which is, you know, in every, every cinematographer's rule book, a big no-no. But, you know, she understood that I was going for something that would affect the audience emotionally on a gut level and that would enhance what her character is going through. So, you know, it, it was really great working in, in that way. And from a lighting perspective, you know, the sensitivity of the film stock was so great that, I mean, that, that particular scene that goes on for, I, I don't know how many minutes, maybe three and a half minutes or so, uh, and never cuts, was lit with, with two movie lights, only two. Wow. You know, and, and the sensitivity of the film stock would carry me organically and naturally into areas that should have shadow and, and, and areas that should be brighter. Um, it was really kind of the perfect match of, of camera and lighting and, and actors, you know, working together to try to create something special. Uh, it's interesting because it sounds like the storytelling, it's almost uh, psychological in the way that you're approaching how you're telling the story. Is that is that something that you apply to all the different stuff that you work on, or is it something that for American Horror Story you specifically kind of um, adapted for that? Well, I've I've always done it in in uh, in some way, in in small ways, but American Horror Story really kind of lent itself to doing it in a major way. I think because of the genre and because of the subject matter. But um, you know, I, I'm always looking for just that that internal point of view that uh, is not what the audience is expecting to see, maybe, but but makes the audience feel what I want them to feel. And, uh, you know, so certainly, uh, you know, I've applied it in, in a lot of my other work. I even did it on Glee. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, a way of, of working that, um, that goes against probably every rule of good cinematography on television. Um, I, I frequently tell groups of students that I'm probably a bad television cinematographer because uh, a lot of times television depends on the, uh, the easy repeatability of looks. You know, when you go into this science lab and you, you turn on the switch, it looks like this during the day. When you go into this morgue and you turn on the switch, it looks like this at night. But the the problem I've always had with that is that it's a complete denial of the emotional state of the character who's in that environment at that particular moment. And I always felt like the cinematography and the lighting should reflect how that character is feeling and not just the look of, of the set. So, yeah. so it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun balance to find. Yeah, and it's what? probably why American Horror Story has stood out so much when it came on. Was it was so different? I mean, I remember um, I actually started with Asylum and then went back and watched the first season. But when I started watching, I was like, I have never seen anything like this on TV before. I mean, it was so unique, and I think it, the storytelling approach you're talking about lent so much authenticity to the show. And just listening to you talk about it, like I, I, I guess I didn't realize 
at the time how much in the head of the characters I was. Right. But now that you, you were talking about it, it's like, yeah. I re- like That's why I got a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I truly, yeah. you know, I could, I was, there was some part of me that was truly feeling it, you know, and it transferred into to my subconscious. <laughs> right. Well, I, ideally, ideally, that's the way it should work. I mean, I don't want the audience to, to ever feel like, uh, oh, what a whacked out point of view. You know, I want them to live the whacked out point of view. Right. 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 Do you have any any uh, like when when you're going to approach a genre, like how how do you modify the way that you're going to shoot? So Glee versus American Horror Story, as an example, um, <clears throat> is there something about horror that lends itself more to the psychological story that you're talking about? Or you had mentioned that on Glee you did a similar thing. How do you adjust your storytelling technique? Yeah, well, it, I think you know, regardless of of genre, regardless of type of movie. Um, you know, the approach is, is certainly dictated by the script and by what's going on with the characters in, in that particular moment. And, you know, with Glee, you know, I, I was always trying to find some way to um, to efficiently reflect the ambitions and, and the energy of, of this group of kids. And in, in a lot of ways, it's no different than what I was doing on American Horror Story, similar to, you know, to what I did on this uh, movie with Alfonso, the, the remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown. You know, you're looking for some way that's not just, okay, here's this person and these are the words that they're saying, you know. So so I'm I'm very happy with the, what I did on, on Glee and, and um, you know, genre differences aside, I, I think people could look at the the episode that I shot of Glee and American Horror Story and find a similarity of approach. Cool. We were a little interested what what might be your favorite guilty pleasure horror movie. <laughs> oh wow. You know, there's uh you know, I'm I, I love bad movies equally as much as I love great movies. <laughs> so <laughs> I have I have quite a few because uh the, I, I find the bad movies that we're trying to reach for uh, being the next Citizen Kane or the next Lawrence Arabia, but for, for reasons uh, usually of a, a lack of uh, a talent, lack of resources, lack of budget, lack of whatever, you know, they couldn't reach it, but they were still trying to reach for it. I find very interesting to watch. And, um, you know, as a result, I have a huge collection of the first movies uh, shot by ASC cinematographers because even with no resources, no budgets, uh, no anything, you could see the uh, kind of the genius behind it. You know, when I when I watch Laszlo Kovacs' work on Lila Mantis and Lace and, and the, uh, the kind of whacked out visuals when she goes into this psychotic episode where she kills somebody... Um, or or Vilmos's work on the Sadist for Arch Hall. Um, there's a there's a lot of uh, I think really great things in what people would say are are marginally socially acceptable movies. So I, I have a, I have actually a lot of guilty pleasure movies. I'm I'm sitting in my home theater right now looking around and, and you know with thousands and thousands and thousands of movies and and uh, a lot of them are are. Uh, just for sheer entertainment value, um, right, right. just <laughs> great, great to watch. I was I was screening yesterday for a friend of mine, uh, Ilsa Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheiks, which is a um, completely non politically correct um, movie. Um, but you know, it has some interesting elements. Like 
Spalding Gray was in it playing the oil sheik, and which a lot of people don't remember. And and uh, you know, but it's it's you got to uh, you got to keep I think your mind open, and and that's that's what I do. I mean, I have a huge eclectic collection in my theater of uh, various types of movies, a lot of different types of movies, not not just horror, not just sci-fi not just dramas and comedies and stuff, but all kinds of, I love documentaries. I love silent movies. I love foreign films, you know, so guilty pleasures. Hmm. It's, you know, it's hard to nail down one. <laughs> right, right. I have so many. It's, it's like a Sophie's choice. How can you possibly pick? <laughs> yeah. You've shot um, television and some feature films as well. I mean, is there even a difference anymore bef- between shooting the two? So many TV sh- series are so long, and it feels like probably even longer than a, you know, it is longer than a feature film. So are there any differences between the two now? <laughs> uh, for me, there's no difference really in shooting a, a television series or, or a feature. Um, I approach both the same way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, the difference, I guess, psychologically is is uh, on a feature, you're, you're never going to return to that set again. Right. So whatever you do in that moment, you have to make sure it's it's exactly what it is that you want to do. Uh, you know, sometimes on, on television, you, you have a, a chance to go back and, and uh, rethink, you know, this set or that set. But uh, I tend to never do the same thing uh, twice anyway. So... If I go back to the same set, you know, my, my gaffer, John McGowan, and I have this kind of rule between us that, you know, well, we've already lit it this way. We've already shot it like this. We're not going to do that again. So it, it keeps everything fresh, and it forces you constantly to find a different way to look at the world. But uh, other than that, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's no difference for me between shooting features or television. Nice. Do you look for, as a cinematographer, when you're looking for uh, directors or like your uh, collaboration with Ryan Murphy on American Horror Story, how do you, do you look for people that, I mean, you connect with them, you want to come back and work with them again, or similar to what you're saying a second ago, are you always kind of looking for that, that new creative partner to dig in with? Um, it depends on what level. I mean, I like working with different directors because different directors bring different points of view. Uh, in terms of crew, I tend to, to work with a lot of the same people over and over and over again. Um, even though you're doing something different every single time, because they know that that's how you think, they respond to it and they accommodate it and they, they make it happen. The crew, uh, you know, the grip crew, the electric crew, the camera department, um, it really takes the coordinated efforts of all those people plugging into your thought process and your working methodology in order for you to achieve anything. Um, I could not achieve what I did on American Horror Story without the support of, of all those people and, you know, and wardrobe and, and makeup and, and special effects and everybody else. But So you tend to work with a lot of the same people, but on entirely different concepts. And I think that's very exciting. It keeps it fresh for everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. Going back, you know, the beginning where we talked about learning on, um, you know, Super 8 or 8mm and um, what that can do for you in your career in general and learning about light and exposure. Now that that film is used less, even though we're now seeing sort of a resurgence, what are some of the um, some advice that you might have for a next generation of cinematographers, knowing the things that they they can pull from now to learn? 
you know, everybody always asks me, what's the future of film? You know, who's going to save film? And um, I, I said at one of the uh, HPA retreat uh, luncheon uh, seminars uh, that I was speaking at, um, I, I said, you know, the, the, the people who are going to save film are not, are not Christopher Nolan and uh, Quentin Tarantino and J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg. And, um, you know, it, it's really everybody who is in that room. It's it's really every fledgling filmmaker who has heard about film but maybe hasn't shot it yet, you know, who has looked at uh, what I did on American Horror Story or what others have done um, in cinema uh, or looked at Star Wars The Force Awakens, you know, which was shot on film and looks fantastic. You know, it, it takes those new filmmakers to look at, at those movies and say, you know, I want to have this option open to me for the movies that I want to make. And then they just need to go out there and do it. They need to contact Kodak and get some film and get a camera from one of the rental houses and and just go out there and shoot it and see what it is and, and what it can do. Uh, one of the most valuable things that I did in uh, college, when I went to Columbia College in Chicago, is, is uh, the first day they gave you a 16-millimeter Bolex and 100 feet of uh, black-and-white film. I think it was Tri-X Reversal. And they said, go out and shoot a dozen shots of something that means something to you that tells a contained story. And, you know, I have to think that they knew you were going to screw it up <laughs> because, you know, you'd never maybe worked with a, a manually uh, focused and manual exposure camera before and you just vaguely know how to operate a light meter but what it did is it erased completely the fear of failure it eliminated the fear of doing something wrong uh, on the very first day and that's what i think uh, a lot of the young filmmakers uh, you know who have this fear of well wait a minute film is not auto everything i have the responsibility to to shoot it in a certain way yes but you also have the possibility to make it what you want you right. know which is what i did on american horror story so you know the only way to get over your fear of the unknown is to plunge into the unknown and you know get a roll of film and shoot it and I think, you know, the, the, the pleasant surprises far outweigh, you know, the, the devastation of, oh, I messed this up. Well, yeah, well, of course you messed it up, but you took a chance. And if you don't continue to take chances, you don't grow as an artist. That's great right. advice. Yep. Yeah, and, and for any young filmmakers out there who are listening, we make plenty of film. It's <laughs> out there. People in Rochester are making it every day. So just give us a call. <laughs> You had mentioned a little a little bit ago um, that you 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 collect a lot of films from ASC members and and people that are new to it. You're a past president of the ASC, correct? Yeah, I was president of the ASC for three terms. So what what does the president of the ASC do? Could you tell our audience a little bit about the organization? Well, the American Society of Cinematographers is uh, contrary to what uh, some people think is not the union. That's uh, the International Cinematographers Guild, Local 600. But the the ASC is an honorary organization. It's dedicated to the education of the the next generation of filmmakers and and also to the science and and technology of the, uh, the devices and the technologies that we use to create motion pictures. And so the membership uh, is by invitation only, uh, and it's a—it's actually still a very small membership, even for as many people as we take in. It, it's, it's still a fairly small club. 
So to to be invited uh, to to join is is really a big deal, and we do a lot of uh, things through the committees of the AAC, like the the technology committee, which Curtis Clark is is the uh, the chairman of, has partnered with the the Motion Picture Academy and the Visual Effects Society and and a lot of uh, entities in Hollywood to explore all of the new technologies that are coming out and and to see how it relates to traditional. Uh, movie-making uh, techniques and, and to see what the future is, what is the evolving future. And, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to explore virtual reality, you know, and, and I know there's a lot of pushback on, on that, but the thing is, you know, you, you want to know what the tools are so you can make the best informed choice of which tool works for the project that you're doing. And we have such a, a broad uh, mix of, of people, Um you know, from all over the world in the ASC as our members. So the, uh, the pool of talent and the, uh, just the, the intelligence and the artistry that exists in that clubhouse uh, in Hollywood is, is really amazing. I mean, I've learned so much about my own craft just by sitting at the bar, Billy's Bar, which is we named after Billy Fraker, uh, the bar at the ASC, and talking to other cinematographers about what they did in a particular movie. And, and uh, it's it's really the best film school, <laughs> I think, you know, for, for anybody. Um, you know, I remember talking to Owen Roisman about how he did that, that famous iconic shot from The Exorcist of the shaft of light coming from the window on the second floor where Reagan was when uh, Father Marin arrives in the taxi cab. Because the window shade is closed, right? But there's there there's a piercing beam of light coming through the window, and uh, his solution to to that was really brilliant. And I don't know that I should say it. You know, I, I yeah. think you know Owen should should yeah, give away yeah. his own secrets. <laughs> yeah, that 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 oh, that scene is incredible. I know exactly what you're talking about. Megan yeah. can't watch that movie. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I won't do that to myself. <laughs> you know, I, I I made another movie you probably haven't seen that you can't watch either, Megan. It's called Megan is Missing, uh, about abducted and murdered children. I saw that predator. you made that, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, and, and it came to my mind because we're talking about film and, and film technology. And, and uh, you know, I want to be a film preservationist when I, I no longer shoot or direct. Um, I want to travel around the world and find lost movies. And, you know, I really do want to find Lon Chaney's London After Midnight. Uh, as much as some of my films, uh, my friends in film preservation tell me, well, it's bound to be a tremendous letdown because you wanted to see that movie since you were 10 years old. But I don't care. I want to find it. I know it's out there somewhere. And uh, when I did Megan is, is Missing, you know, we, we did it uh, on video because I wanted video artifacts as part of the aesthetic of the movie. But the plan was always to transfer it to film, to transfer the final movie to 35mm negative and have that stored at the ProTech vault. So we have 35mm negative and 35mm prints in the movie. That's great. But the original uh, data that the, was captured for the movie, the original video data, uh, uh, developed errors two years after I made the movie. And all the original data cannot be accessed anymore. Um, and you know, that points out, I think the fragility of what we're talking about sometimes when we talk about video or digital, um, 
something that can be so easily uh, erased or compromised uh, is, is, you know, I really have to think twice, you know, do, do I want to have the movie that I have labored so long to, to create in, in a format that can be so easily um, deleted? And so, you know, I think that's still one of the uh, the best for me arguments about film and film technology is is that you know we have films that are over a hundred years old sure. that still exist, but we don't have most of the golden age of television from the 1950s because it was shot on videotape, and we don't have my original data from a movie that I made two years earlier because it's all gone. So. Wow. Yeah, we were just talking with um, the director for Hidden Figures, Ted Melfi, who collaborated heavily with NASA on the on his feature film that he did, and he was telling us that they got the negatives from so much footage from, um, you know, uh, John Glenn and all, all sorts of like Apollo missions and stuff that they used, and they were just able to to get that negative, and then they they put it in their movie just like that. So it's pretty incredible. The yeah. power of yeah. film, yeah, 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 yeah. And you want to you want to have all these options available to you, you know, and not, and not do like like they did in the early days of television, just kind of like dump everything and, and say, okay, everything's on videotape. Well, you know, Desi Arnaz was the one who stood up against that and said, well, no, I want I love Lucy shot on film because I don't I don't really trust <laughs> video just yet and i love lucy is one of the only shows that exists in pristine form now because they just keep retransferring those negatives right yeah my I have a final question would be um through all that you've shot and all that you've watched because it sounds like you're an avid lover of, of cinema what has cinema taught you and what keeps bringing you back to the camera to record something new well, what, you know, what cinema taught me very early on, um, because I love documentaries and I shot a lot of documentaries early in my career, and I still do occasionally, um, is that you can really open people's eyes to different experiences, different parts of the world, um, different points of view. And, you know, you do that also in scripted uh, material. But, you know, movies... Movies are, are magic to me. I don't know of, uh, and I'm a huge lover of art, uh, you know, paintings and photography and stuff, but there's something about uh, motion pictures, about watching those images on the screen that really transports me. And, um, you know, and I, I recognize that from a very early age in Chicago, growing up in Chicago when I would go to the Parkway Cinema and because they would show three double features uh, a week of anything they could buy for 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. So they got these old battered prints of movies and, and they would just run them and I would watch everything because, uh, you know, it, everything, it was all telling me something different. It was giving me some new uh, views, uh, things that I had not thought of before. So, so cinema and, and movies, uh, you know, people, you know, people, my friends know that at two o'clock in the morning, pretty much every single night, I'm in my home theater watching a movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching something. You know, I only sleep like three and a half hours a night. But, you know, my, my time that I'm awake is, is filled with uh, inspiration because I can go to my shelf and, and I can uh, 
pull out a movie like Take a Girl Like You, which with you know, um, with Haley Mills and and you know just so many uh, movies that uh, you know are inspiring for very different reasons. And like I said, even even the bad ones. Right. Even 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 the visitor, even the visitor, which I've seen probably I've seen the visitor maybe twelve times, and it's the most incomprehensible movie <laughs> uh, you could ever imagine. And it's got a huge cast. It's got John Huston and Shelley Winters and Lance Henriksen and and uh, Franco Nero and all these people wandering around, and you know it, that, uh, and you have no idea what's going on in that movie, but it, it's just. <laughs> It's it's just incomprehensible on such a massive scale. I just enjoy watching it. So. It's wonderful. Well, cool. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Cool. Well, enjoy your movie. Have fun. Yeah. And, and we'll okay. hopefully see you in Rochester sometime That's soon. That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. You got it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. It is a great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention, 